0: Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Encero, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Even before the pandemic, children's mental health in the United States had been declining. Depressive symptoms and feeling of sadness and hopelessness were rising, and more of their caregivers and parents were experiencing rising rates of substance use disorder. With the pandemic, adolescents have reported higher rates of depression, and with the economic fallout from COVID-19, the child poverty rate is forecast to rise by 53%. Children and teenagers have unique needs and they have not benefited from the many changes that have taken place to integrate mental health care into primary care, as has happened for adults. Three organizations, the Wellbeing Trust, the California Children's Trust, and Mental Health America, recently released a report examining how well health insurers and state Medicaid programs are covering mental health care for children and compliance with federal law. On this episode of Managed Cast, we speak with Dr. Benjamin F. Miller, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for Wellbeing Trust and one of the authors of the report. He discusses the unique challenges that youth face, the health disparities, racism, and community trauma that has been experienced during the past year, and some creative ways that organizations and communities can consider as they work to increase access to these important mental health supports. Dr. Miller, can you introduce yourself and describe a little bit about uh, the work you do at the Wellbeing Trust?
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So my name is Ben Miller. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I have been at Wellbeing Trust now for a little over four years. My background is in family medicine, where I was an associate professor of family medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine before coming over to philanthropy. Uh, In my current role at Wellbeing Trust, I'm the chief strategy officer, which means I oversee our, our overall strategy and our investments, making sure that they align with our mission, vision, values, and goals my research interest and pretty much passions are around how we can better integrate mental health into the fabric of healthcare and our communities so thanks again for having me
0: in conjunction with the california children's trust and the other organization mental health america you recently released a report examining how well health insurers and state medicaid programs are covering mental health care for children Before we get into the findings of the report, what is the current state of mental health of children and teens, not only for this past year, but before that, Good. and I would be a little remiss if I did not note that your report is coming out as certain states are enacting laws. We're trying to enact laws against health care for trans youth. And on top of that, we just saw two teens give emotional testimony in the trial of the Minneapolis police officer as they were filming the death of George Floyd.
1: Pay attention to our children and what's going on, not only during this last year, during lockdown and the pandemic, but even the crisis that was emerging before the pandemic. We are going to have significant generational, intergenerational issues that we're going to have to deal with. And so let me just kind of unpack that just a little bit. Uh, Studies after study keep showing that there's an increase in symptoms around depression, anxiety, even suicidal ideation in our youth. And a couple of studies that really stand out. One, there was a study that looked at how long children are waiting in the emergency room or emergency department to get help. And what's disturbing about this study, it was a 2005 to 2015 study. Uh, Over that 10 year period, you saw a substantial increase in the number of kids showing up in the emergency department and waiting longer, but only about 16% of those children showing up with some type of crisis for a mental health crisis were actually being seen by a mental health provider. And this is before the pandemic. And as you alluded to, not only has the pandemic and some of the social disconnectedness, the isolation, the uncertainty really caused problems, but really our kids not being able to be in school which is where they are able to have a lot of the connection with their peers. For some youth, roughly around 30 to 40% of youth, that's the only place that they get their mental health services. So we had a problem before, we have a problem during. And our report was trying to highlight that there are a substantial number of things that we can actually do to improve children's mental health. And we begin with the most obvious public policy talking point, which is around healthcare coverage. So I'll tell you a little bit about what we found and then we can kind of back into some other questions here. But, you know, basically what we determined in looking at this is that state Medicaid programs have a huge opportunity to do more to take care of kids, especially around mental health. Some of that is around basic things like enforcing mental health parity laws or ensuring that uh, you know, early prevention, uh, screening, treatment uh, is paid for and actually done so consistently. But really what we wanted to highlight is that we need to make sure that mental health services are brought to kids wherever they show up. So that's in schools and pediatric settings to allow for them to have easier access to the type of treatments that are going to make a difference in their lives.
0: What are the obstacles getting in the way of that? Is it financing and reimbursement?
1: Well, there's a, a, an easy answer and a hard answer. So the easy answer, I would say, is yes, financing reimbursement, some of the ways that we have created health insurance benefits over the years. But the, the harder answer is really around our culture and the history of how we've addressed mental health in this country. And so let me just say a couple more sentences about that. You know, Going back to you know, President John F. Kennedy and some of the initial laws that were enacted around mental health, decisions that were made back in 1963 have had a ripple effect on where we are in 2021. That means that we have a fragmentation in how we deliver care, a fragmentation in how we pay for care, fragmentation in how we create benefits for care. All of those things are still pretty significant and do hamper a lot of our innovation that we actually are trying to pursue right now for mental health. So I think that there's some immediate things that we can do. I mean, First and foremost is that we could look at how we pay for care. Let's make sure that we incentivize clinicians to, you know, to ultimately work together in team-based ways. Let's look at outcomes instead of just the number of visits that you have with the patient. From a coverage perspective, we could do the things that I mentioned briefly. We can enforce mental health parity, which has been a law in this country for over 10 years, but yet we find that a lot of health insurers aren't necessarily enforced in their uh, compliance with the law. And then I think the last thing, which is really important, is that we need to have leadership and vision That really is striving to create a different type of system of care, especially for our kids, one that does meet them where they're at and stops asking families and children to have to work harder to be able to get care and find the clinic, but really to bring that care that is so important to to the patient, to the person, to the family in their community.
0: How well are state Medicaid programs performing?
1: Well, you know, in terms of just mental health and substance use disorder or mental health and addiction treatment overall, I would say that most Medicaid programs do a far superior job in terms of offering services than I think we could see on the commercial side. There's a lot more options. Sometimes there's wraparound services. There's a lot more uh, that comes along with your Medicaid benefit in the mental health space. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy always to access care. It doesn't mean that there are not some states that could do a better job. It simply means that you're sometimes going to find that you're going to get a little bit more than what you might on the commercial side. Now, in terms of what states are doing for mental health parity and enforcing that, you know, we did a report card uh, study a couple of years ago that found that most states, three fourths of the country, receives a failing grade when it comes to enforcing mental health parity. And that's just that's changing, of course. We're seeing laws. And legislation that are being enacted and being introduced that really do speak to the importance of how we can enforce mental health to hold health insurers, you know, uh, accountable for something that's been, you know, on the books for 10 years now. Uh, If you look at the data, though, and the reason that I think we're so passionate about this is that it does impact on people's ability to access to care. For some, they might avoid care altogether because they're afraid of how much it's going to cost. For others, which we've seen in actuarial analyses, they're they're six times more likely to pay out of pocket for a mental health visit than they are a medical visit. And that does impact families, it impacts their decision and how they may or may not choose to seek care.
0: Is any of this a provider resource workforce issue where there aren't enough specialists who can treat pediatric mental health problems?
1: Absolutely. So inevitably, when we have conversations around public policy for access, we will be, have to address issues of workforce. I mean, just a couple of data points here. I mean, 50 percent of the country has to drive more than one hour round trip to get a mental health provider to see them. You know, a third of the individuals who actually seek care have to wait more than a week to access mental health services. And that actually is pretty good for parts of the country. And then we know that half the U.S. counties have no psychiatrist. So when we look at the rates of individuals or kids that are actually being able to be seen for care, it's very small. So just to, just to kind of say this, uh, one more uh, point here is like wait times for an outpatient appointment can last up to you know, a week to 25 days or much longer. And so when we think about the workforce, there's a huge demand for services and there's a low supply of the workers, which means we have to get extremely creative. We've got to be able to think about how can we bring our workforce to the places that people are. I would put that into a redistribution of the workforce category. We've got to think about who the workforce is and where they actually work. I think that that's a huge number one area that we have to address in workforce. The second thing is we actually have to get creative about who is our workforce. So most often we think about clinicians as being the the typical workforce, the only workforce that we can have. But yet there are community health workers and peer support specialists and people who don't necessarily have a license that can do some of the same tasks in a different way to help offset or enhance capacity for the specialty clinicians. And then finally, I think we really need to embrace models of community care where each of us are learned are, are taught to, uh, to address interventions or to be taught interventions that can allow us to address mental health and addiction within our own communities so that when you're talking to a friend, a family, a neighbor, an an employee, somebody who is in your life, that you know how to respond to them when they reach out for help. You know how to respond to them if they say that they are actively suicidal. And I think this goes just as much for our adults as our kids. Mental Health America found that 47% of youth surveyed said that they were more comfortable talking to their peers about mental health compared to 27% who said they wanted to talk to their mom and dad. And so as a parent, I think, well, you know, that's, that's I want to talk my kids to talk to me about this. And of course they should, and we should enable an environment with that they will. But as we do that, let's think more creatively about how to empower these children to talk to each other. To me, that's another form of workforce.
0: Are schools getting more involved in bringing this kind of care to kids where they are?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of mental health in schools, I think we've seen a couple of trends nationally. One is that a lot of states, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, You know, a handful of states have begun to pursue legislation that consistently allows for there to be curriculum specific to mental health, and that's a great first step to educate our youth on the power of mental health in our lives. Secondly, we've seen some movement to really reinforce that onsite provision of care, and a lot of this has been backed because you were mentioning um, the trial that's going on right now in this country for for um, Derek Chauvin around George Floyd's death. Mm -hmm. When we think about the trauma in some of our communities and we think about the first response to many of our youth who are in a crisis, it is a police response. So if you're a child in a school and you're expressing suicidal ideation or you're having some type of acute psychiatric crisis or whatever it might be, the the likelihood that you're going to get an empathic mental health counselor is very small because we don't have enough of those clinicians placed in the schools. The likelihood that you get a police presence that shows up is very high, because in many cases, schools simply don't know what to do. And as a former educator who taught special ed, I can tell you that the resources that we need are oftentimes unavailable. But the response that we give sometimes can be uh, to, can work against the healing or the treatment of that youth who will be in a crisis, who does need support and does need care, who may not actually want to seek that care after you know, a police officer is their first response when they actually reach out for help.
0: I could see where that might turn the student or the family off to seeking anything after that.
1: Absolutely. It would be an example of what I would describe as a structural stigma. So we talk a lot about stigma in terms of social, like how we treat each other, how we respond to each other, but it's an example of a structural st- stigma where the systems or the structures reinforce that mental health is so different that we have to treat it as such. And that does not necessarily lend itself to an open and friendly environment for families or youth to come forward and talk about mental health.
0: So this is going off the topic of your report, I think a little bit, but are there opportunities to integrate um, this kind of care more into primary care or pediatric care so that families are not left so adrift
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you look at well, just my career and, you know, if you were just browsing the Internet and you were looking at, well, what is this Miller guy published? You know, most of my publications in the peer reviewed space have been around how you integrate mental health into primary care. And the reasons for this is, as you're alluding to, uh, most of the time that the family is presenting with an issue with their child, a concern, they're going to the person who they have a relationship with. And in and, and so many cases for a lot of us, it is a pediatrician or a primary care provider, family doc, internal medicine. And we open up because we have a relationship with them. So many cases for a lot of us, it is a pediatrician or a primary care provider, family doc, internal medicine. And we open up because we have a relationship with them. But in, in many cases in the country, what happens is that our primary care practices are ill equipped or don't have the time necessary to really do a deep dive into addressing mental health. So by bringing mental health services, clinicians on site into the fabric of pediatric care, into primary care, we allow for much more of a comprehensive whole person team-based approach to care, which is not only better for the patient, better for their family, it, it helps improve outcomes and can lower cost. I mean, there's a lot to like about that. We've known about it for some time, but unfortunately our country is still slow to embrace these things that really do make the most impact on our families.
0: Do you have any examples that you know of where this is successfully being carried out?
1: Absolutely. Uh, A few years ago, we did a study for the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality that looked at integration exemplars. And we listed about 10 of them. We wrote a bunch of papers on what we found. But one of the ones that I'm actually partial to talking about is here in my backyard in uh, East Tennessee, which is called Cherokee Health Systems. They are are probably one of the top, if not the top integrated primary care site I can tell you about in the country. What makes them so unique? Well, they've made it fundamentally a part of their culture where mental health is a direct seamless provision side by side with primary care, but they don't just allow for more of those immediate health behavior, mild to moderate interventions for mental health. They actually have specialty mental health on site too. So you get the best of all worlds. If you need more specialty care for mental health, there's somebody there to take care of you. If you just need an immediate intervention to help you with whatever you're going through, or maybe you need both, they have that available. And they have almost the the unicorn these days. They have child and adolescent psychiatry that can also be on site or beam in through telehealth to provide some type of uh, support for those families. So folks who are uh, unfamiliar with Cherokee, you can look them up. They, have, they started as a community mental health center, they eventually became a federally qualified health center, and now they are both, and have been both for several years now and are arguably one of the most successful models in the entire United States.
0: I will look them up. That sounds really interesting. I know that it is hard to find a child a psychiatrist, even in a densely populated state. That Poverty is one of the factors, obviously, influencing children's mental health and also problems with parents or caregivers in terms of substance use disorder, which you alluded to. What are your fears as we hopefully come out of the pandemic about any lasting impacts as those two things are intertwined, it would seem?
1: Yeah, well, we need to be really having a much more in-depth conversation as a nation on the role of trauma and what this last year has done to us. There was a study that just came out a couple of weeks ago in JAMA that looked at the number of children who have lost a parent and it's over 40,000, 40,000 youth. And as even in the best of our times in our life, when we are adults and we happen to lose a parent, it's still one of the most difficult, dare I say, traumatic things that you can go through. And so youth losing parents that has this generational impact where these youth exposed to trauma early on, especially if that trauma goes unaddressed as they become adults, have a higher likelihood of substance misuse, in some cases, higher likelihood of depression, anxiety. In other cases, higher likelihood of even suicidal ideation. So we want to make sure that we do a better job unpacking and assessing trauma early on in in our kids' lives, especially during COVID. And it begins with simple things. And I don't mean, I mean, I'm a policy wonk and I can make everything complicated, but I think it begins with simple things, which is just simply asking, our children, our youth, how they're doing. And as parents, as school teachers, as loved ones, asking youth how they're doing and being okay when they tell you something that may not lend itself to be, to, that they are okay, or they're not okay. If they say to you, hey, listen, I'm really struggling with this or I've thought about you know, taking my life or I've been using or drinking or whatever it might be. The best thing we can do is to really empower them to know that help is available, to express empathy, to to show them that this has been difficult for all of us and to be there for them, nonjudgmental, just be there for them. Having somebody that can assist in a more traditional clinical way, obviously that's something that you wanna pursue if needed. But sometimes the most powerful interventions are simply being there for someone and allowing them to know that you're there no matter what they say and that you're gonna be able to support them no matter how hard it
0: gets. I kind of wish that every community had a designated group of people or parents that kids knew they could go to, to talk to if they had a problem or a question, uh, sort of how you were talking about community care, because so often when you ask your own kid how they're doing, you get the grunt, you know, "Ah, fine, you know, so um, they don't always wanna talk to their parents.
1: Well, other countries have embraced this a lot better than we have. And, you know, maybe this is a, a show for another day, but I mean, if you look around the world, you find grandmothers trained, who are the matriarchs of villages trained to address depression in men. You find huh. examples of where the, the person who is the most trusted go-to leader in the community is the one who's now delivering the mental health interventions. It just doesn't, it hasn't worked so much in the United States because we haven't created a plan to actually scale this up. It's something that we are pursuing this year with partners across the country, but we believe that it is a solution that is in dire need that we are just in dire need of the solution in this country. Because as you mentioned, we do not have enough workforce. Our country's going in the wrong direction in terms of the data. And we've got to do something to break this stranglehold on um, just the pain that many folks have felt in their lives. We have to come to a place of healing. And the only way I feel like we're gonna be able to do that is fundamentally get to the heart of mental health in this nation.
0: To end on a hopefully more positive note, you had some solutions in the report that you proposed um, on the federal level with a new administration. Are you hopeful that any of these things will be addressed?
1: Yeah, I think that if we look at some some of the things that we propose just so the, the listeners are aware, I mean, we look at some of the enforcement around insurance policies, making sure that there's compliance. We look at supporting implementation specifically around things like federal match for Medicaid programs, which is an easier way for states to be able to get a few more dollars for revenue to support services. And we and I could go on. Um, I think this administration has sent some strong signals as to where their priorities will be. Now, we're still trying to get a CMS administrator coming in, uh, I know we're having the hearings on that now, but I think if you look at some of the people who have been put in positions of leadership from the Surgeon General's office to even temporary positions like an ONDCP and SAMHSA, it does send a strong signal that mental health and addiction will be a priority. Um, Department of Labor has had someone, is having someone now in Secretary Walsh who's overseeing you know, opportunities to really enforce mental health parity. So there's, I, I feel very confident that this administration is going to pay a lot of attention to some of the issues that we flag in the report. I also feel confident this administration is going to do something meaningful around mental health and addiction.
0: Is there anything else I forgot to ask or anything else you want to expand on?
1: You know, the workforce piece is just one thing I'll say. I mean, I, I just think we recognize that any solution to solve our nation's mental health workforce crisis, it, it can't just involve having more clinicians. It's We have to broaden how we think about our workforce to allow for more timely interventions in the places that people are showing up in mental health with mental health needs, mainly their communities. This benefits our, our youth, because we're gonna show up in schools. it benefits their parents because we're gonna be in the workplace. It benefits all of us because we're gonna be in those places that mental health has historically not been. And to me, I think that is a multi-solver. It's gonna address many issues at once and it could change the trajectory of where we're going as a nation.
0: This was really informative and um, I really wanna thank you for coming on because I think this is something that uh, we definitely all need to know about. Thank you so much for joining Managed Carecast.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having
0: me on. All right. Take care. Take care. For all of us at AGMC, thanks for listening. For more about this issue, visit AGMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AGMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AGMC journal. And if you like Managed Care Cast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.